right. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to have you here this morning. I've been gone for a few weeks, and so it's fun to be just with all of you, even though we're, we're online right now, kind of through the, the screen and through the camera. Truly, I've missed just uh, being up here and being able to preach God's word. But I think this morning, here's how I want to start. It's, it's been kind of an interesting time, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's been a long year, and then over the last few weeks, there's been the sh- both the shootings in Atlanta, there's been the shootings in, in Boulder, which is very close for, to where I grew up. And so right now, just for those two kind of cities, towns, could we just stop for a moment as a church, and could we just pray for them, especially pray for the believers, pray for God to do powerful things. And so could you just, I know we just pray, but could you just join me again, please? Father, thank you so much just for your goodness in our life, even just what we've just been singing about, you being a good, good God, and you bring goodness into our life. And Father, in spite of just living in an evil world that every once in a while, in ways that we don't understand, kind of the facade of our our world, we, we pull back and we just see the ugliness, we see the devastation, we see the brokenness of the world that we live in. And so, Father, for those communities right now, I pray for them. I pray for those families. But, Father, I guess right now my heart is just heavy for your church. I know right now as everyone points fingers and tries to dissect different things that were going on in those two events, I pray instead of your church just kind of gazing at the navel, would we instead be a church that steps out and brings goodness into the communities in which we live Father, I know that this was evil and it was wrong. But yet I also know you are powerful. And you have the capacity to take what humanity does that is so twisted and so wrong and so broken and to bring good out of it. So would you do that? Would you truly demonstrate yourself? Would people learn you and know you and follow you because they come into contact with the great God of the universe who loves us and cares for us and orchestrates all things for your, the good of your name and in your will. And so we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for, for praying with me. Well, here's what I, I want to I do this morning. <clears throat> We're walking through just this series on, on, on how did Jesus walk and then therefore how did Jesus walk? Like we're going to walk as Jesus walked. That's been the kind of mantra that we've been trying to do. Now, one of the things that's very important about this, and I hope you've caught it as we've been working through, is that we get these different images of who Jesus was while he was on earth in kind of powerful ways, if you noticed it. Now, one of the things that I think that has stuck out to me, especially up to this moment where we're kind of moving towards the death of Jesus, was just his, almost his his confidence and his composure, It just seemed like everything that he did, he had just this boldness to it, but in that boldness, there was like a calm. Like one of my favorite moments, the way I was reading about out of the book of Luke is that at one point, Jesus is sitting there preaching in front of all the big dudes in the religion, right? All the Pharisees, all the scribes, and just in the middle of all of it, he just confidently began to call them out on some pretty difficult things. And then all of a sudden, it was almost like he had this mic drop moment, and he just walked away. 
In another instance, he was, he was kind of, he was in the temple and, and in, as he's in the temple, he's kind of in this constant conflict from all these different religious leaders that are around him. And as he's taking it, he begins to almost like rebuff them. And as he, he comes at them, confronting them of their hypocrisy, there's a boldness to it, but it's, it was never out of control. Everything was just, it was cool. And as I was reading this, I was just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, he has such bold poise. He's, he's unflinching. And throughout the, like, the entire kind of turbulent life, this is how Jesus just seemed to be pictured. However, when my wife and I got away to kind of celebrate our belated anniversary, on the, I think it was like maybe the, the second morning of my vacation, I ran into the text that this is what I want to look at today, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. We know this. He had just finished eating a meal with the guys who were closest to him, these, these apostles. All around Jerusalem, we know there was this, this buzz. The religious leaders were plotting to, to not only get rid of Jesus' ministry, but to get rid of him. Satan now has entered into Judas by this time, and the wayward apostles now joining with these religious leaders to plot against him by betraying him. Jesus then, he, he arranges this, this meal, this Passover with these guys that I thought Terry just did such a good job with last week. But there he is with them, just loving them and, and serving them. And I love that word to the end. In the middle of all this, right, these guys, as his closest buddies were, were begin to argue over who is gonna be the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus steps into it and he's trying to just patiently and passionately talk to them about, about all the different things, the trials that were coming their way. He was wanting to let Peter know that, hey, Satan actually is coming after you. And yet what did they do? They just kind of explained it away and pretended like, oh, it's not gonna happen. And even right now, as I'm telling you about it, I can still remember the room that I was in that morning as I was sitting there reading it. The sun was just, just coming up and there was just like this, this like orange kind of darkness that was inside of the room. I just was sitting there going, my gosh, how in the world, in the midst of all of this, did he just stay so peaceful, so calm, so assured? I think I was sitting there thinking to myself, man, if I would have been around these guys, I would have lost it. I would have been, you idiots, like what's wrong with you? And I, I remember putting down my iPad on the bed and I just remember asking God, would you just empower me to walk as you walk? Would I, would I have that steadiness like your son had? Would I have that boldness? Would that just exude from my life? What was so interesting is, is I picked up my iPad again I begin to read it in the story that we're going to look at today of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It totally caught me off guard. Right before he, he goes into the garden, you can see this in Luke twenty two thirty eight. 38. If you've got your Bibles, you can go and open to Luke 22. That's where we're going to be today. But he looked at all the guys and he said this statement, it's enough. I just sat and I stared down at these words in the page wondering, what did it mean when he said, it's enough? I grabbed my computer and I opened up my Bible program and I began pulling up different commentaries and one of the guys, and I just wrote this down so I had it, he, he says in there, Jesus was rebuking him saying, fellas, that's enough. 
The second guy I looked at, he, he kind of came in from the t- kind of the same thing, and he's just, he, his point was that Jesus was saying, enough of this like, silly talk. Third dude kind of came at it again, and enough of these foolish conversations, and it wasn't until I got to the last commentary that you could just see in the context of everything that was going on, Jesus was just done. I think you should look at it. He was disheartened. He was spent. The picture of Jesus is no longer as confident and composed. In fact, he just seems uncertain and unsettled. And in that moment, a a quote from John Calvin, the great theologian of the 16th century, just came to my mind, and this is what it says. He said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Sometimes I think we see Jesus as almost like Jedi, Zen, where nothing is coming at him. But I think in this moment, this moment that we're asked to walk into in the garden where Jesus leaves nine back away and then he brings three more along with him and then he says to wait here and he goes in, we're almost like ushered into whole hollow ground and we're gonna be sitting there in this intimate conversation that he's about ready to have with his father. It caused me to pause because for the first time, we kind of find Jesus like overcome with just the spiritual dullness of people, the reality of what he's about ready to face. I found myself quickly turning to Matthew and then to Mark. And in Mark's parallel report, he, he says this in verse 33 in chapter 14. He says, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It says in there, he even confessed to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. That expression, very sorrowful, it's like this, it's like an element of astonishment. The, the King James even translated as, I think it is, as sore amazed. It's, it's almost this idea that Jesus was caught off guard by these emotions and everything that was going on that had been weighing on him. And, and now in this moment, what he's about ready to face is currently weighing on him. And Jesus' aching heart It's just feeling the barrage of unbelief that's been coming at him and the imminent death. And it's almost like this heart-wrenching, heart-breaking self-revelation where he just says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. It was hard for me kind of as I sat on my bed that morning and I was reading his approaching death was on the edge and you can just see this in the text of killing him. And he'd hit his breaking point. Now I say that because it's important because I believe all of us have been there at this, this breaking point moment where we kind of don't know what to do. We're, we're left just in that place of uncertainty and unsettledness. And I think if I'm honest, I sometimes struggle to understand that confidence and that composure that he had. But man, I get the breaking point thing. In fact, I think I'm really good at it. In fact, I might even be one of the best people at it. And it just drew to my mind a question that just kept going through it, which is if this is a normal thing for people to get to this breaking point, and even in some ways, if that's pretty clear from Scripture that God isn't afraid to be able to to get at this point, and we know that according to Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus didn't sin in this moment, then what are we supposed to do when we hit that breaking point? 
I think this is so huge for us because I think last March when we, when we hit this moment and moment after moment of breaking points as we begin to walk through life, we are now sitting again, I think, at more moments that are come, gonna be in front of us. What does the church need to do to be that confident, composed group of people? What do we do when we hit the breaking point? Well, my mind just came, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, of just Jesus understanding our weaknesses. He faced all the same things we do. We know that he didn't sin. So let us walk as Jesus walked. Let us, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and there we'll receive help and mercy. We'll find grace to guide us now in this time that we need it the most. This is exactly what Jesus did. The reason that we even find him in this garden at this particular moment is because he was boldly coming to the throne of his father, coming to him knowing, I don't know what to do. I'm sitting here and all this weight on me. And what hit me, I think, that morning as he finished praying, though, is suddenly that confident, that calm Jesus when he exits the garden is right back again. And I want that for us. I want us to be that calm, that, that confident group of people that no matter what comes our way, but we know this and who we are as humans, as these breaking points come all around us, what are we gonna do? So we're gonna ask this question again, like we've been asking all throughout it. If this is true, then how do we walk as Jesus walked? What did Jesus do here? And really, I only wanna look at two verses. That's all I wanna do, specifically verse 22. So if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your iPhones or your phones, your tablets, whatever it is that you use to read God's word, just pull it out, open it up to Luke 22, and we're going we're gonna to start in verse 42, but we're going to look at this. We're going to try to understand how did Jesus do this in, this in the midst of this moment when he had this kind of breaking point, what did he do? And what I want to do to kind of help us remember this, to kind of to call it to mind, kind of cement it in mind, is I'm going to give you four words. Now, these four words aren't that big of a deal. They're just the four words that start each phrase of his prayer, which if you look down in there, one of the words is Father. The next one is if. The next one also is remove and nevertheless. So it's going to be Father, if, remove, and nevertheless. Those are the words that we're going to get into our minds. Now, the first word that we find out here in verse 42 is that Jesus began his prayer with just a, a simple expression, Father. Now, why did he start prayer this way? Why are we supposed to start prayer this way? Is it just because Jesus told us to start prayer this way? Or is there something else inside of this that Jesus understood about his Father that we also need to understand? One of the things that we get from Scripture, the more that we, we understand it, is that from eternity, the Son existed in perfect relationship, in perfect fellowship, in, in perfect love with the Father. The way that I would just look at it is, in the way that I want us to kind of grasp it, God just adores His Son. And I think in this moment, Jesus knew it. He had been with him forever. He was co-eternal. He was co-equal. They existed in this relationship as a triune God with the Holy Spirit. And he knew his father loved him. I mean, if you remember right, after his baptism, right, Jesus comes out of the water and the father declares to the whole world, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John even gets more bold when he says just flat out, the father loves the son, 
And the significance of this that I think is important for us is, is that no matter what the son had gone through, is going through, will go through, Jesus knew experientially, not just, not just cognitively, not just like theoretically, he knew that the father fully loved him. I think for us, as we sit down now and ask, well, if Jesus is, this is true, and we're supposed to call him our father, then what does this mean? Well, when you study through the New Testament, just gospel after gospel, letter after letter, you can't get rid of the fact that if I am in Christ, if I am somebody now that has come and trusted in Jesus and surrendered myself to him and and also now declared my allegiance to King Jesus, the same family relationship that the son has with the father, we now have as the children of God. I know I say this a lot about us being sons and daughters of the Father, but I think sometimes we don't understand how amazing this really is. The Bible's clear that that in the Son, through the work that, that, that he has done to accomplish it, we have become sons and daughters through adoption. We're we're literal children of the Father. I think too, we often miss in some ways just the profoundness of this truth. A few years ago, I was, I was traveling and I got into a conversation with a couple on a plane and, and you know how this goes, right? We, we went through the normal flow of a combo, you know, it's like, where are you from? Are you married? Uh, do you have kids? And somewhere in the middle of it, we arrived at, at, at my children and the fact that mine were, were adopted. After telling kind of the, the cool stories of how each of the kids ended up on our family, the lady asked the question that every foster parent just cringes when they hear it. It was innocent in how she asked it. But she said, oh, what happened to their real parents? Oh my God. I'm sitting there inside going, so I'm not their real parent? But it's this misunderstanding of how families work as if somehow an adopted kid isn't our real kids and we're not their real parents. But I think this this illustration ties so well into how God has adopted us. We sometimes think, oh, I know he's my father, but you know, who's my real father and all these different things. He isn't just anybody. As his adoptive kids, we have got to get into our minds He is our real father. And the same adoration that he has for the son, the father adores us. He loves us. That means that like Jesus, because of his work, because of what he's done in us, we sit firmly in the passionate love of the father. Sure, he's creator. He's the omnipotent ruler of the universe. We're gonna learn more about that in just a second. But I think one of the most important things that we need to grapple with as the church, if we're gonna be confident and composed, is that he's also our dad. A quote that I found this week by a guy named Michael Reeves, which I so appreciated it. He said, the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is father. So as Jesus is sitting there praying that night, he cries out to the one who loves him. 
He cries out to the one that no matter what, he loves him unconditionally. And I think this is something that we have to get into our minds. Now, the first one then is father, but the second one, if you look down at verse 42, it's also there is this word if. So first comes father and then comes if. Now, the second word, this, this word if, if you look down there in verse 42, it says, if you are willing. So the father addresses like this beautiful security that we possess as his kids. No one can snatch us out of his hand. But this if you are willing gets after the ability of our loving father. Jesus wasn't praying to some like impotent dad, man. When we look down at this text and when we study scripture, his father is the omnipotent one who's able to do all that he wills. Scripture constantly reminds us, right, when we talk about God, of, of his ability, like in, in like Psalm 115.3, that God does whatever he intends to do. In Genesis 18, nothing is too hard for our God. And in Isaiah 55, his word is never void of power. So when he now speaks, everything in creation obeys him. Now you might be thinking, well, I don't obey him. Isn't that the audacity of humanity? Well, all the rest of the universe obeys him. We have this thing inside of us that thinks we can shake our fist at him. But even in the midst of all the pain, all the difficulty, even in the shootings that took place right now, he is not the author of sin, but our God, when you look at like the book of Job, nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart his will. What he decides to do will happen. And I think this is where Jesus just says, if you're willing. And everything that he can do, no matter the event, he has the capacity to turn to good. Now this truth, man, it's so nutty about this, but it includes like the tiniest details, right? The, the sparrow that falls or the, the amount of hair on our heads. But it also includes the big things like determining which nations are kind of going to operate, which boundaries. He decides which king, or in our case, which president is going to rule. So many people out there thought, you know, we are determining who the president is. Let me just give you news. We vote and we're faithful. We're called to be faithful. But I promise you, President Biden did not end up into office unless God had willed it. He even decided long ago, I was thinking about this just today, long ago that wicked people would take the life of his fully loved son. Why? So that rebels like you and me might have life in him. And Jesus, this is what he knew. He knew that his father just adored him. He knew that his father controlled all things in the universe. Everything operated according to his will. He was crying out to the one that had the capacity and the ability. It was the father that loved him. This week, I was sitting there and I was, I was talking to Rick Utley. He's a man that in many ways has been like a father to me and maybe even to some of you. As we were kind of talking through some of these different truths, he looked back at me and he just said, oh my gosh, this is something that's come up in my life. He was dealing with some issues that were kind of beginning to frustrate him and fell out of control and, and he was feeling somehow that he needed to get control. He needed to fight against what seemed to be so unjust and wrong and he even said, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe some of the things that I said that were so awful that in no way represented Jesus well. 
But this is what I love about God's word. In his reading plan, he was reading through Exodus 14, and he came on this verse that just says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And with that beautiful blow, he just sat back, and he realized his God was in control. See, I think these two are so important because oftentimes we will never trust until we believe and have confidence and have security. I mean, do you get that? Our God, if you are someone who is in Christ, adores you. You are loved. That doesn't mean he's not gonna allow you to walk through difficult things and heartaches, but he will walk through it with you because he's even in control of all those events and he's weaving them together in such a powerful way that you can trust that it will be good. That's who Jesus was praying for or to. He'd hit his breaking point. He was struggling and he just cried out to him. And we have father, and we have if. And the next word that I want to submit in our minds is this word remove. But let me just be honest with you. This word is where it begins to get very real. See, as we enter into that moment with the father and the son, he says in verse 42 to the father, remove this cup from me. It's the heart of anybody that's at a breaking point. It's that heart that says, I don't want to go through with this. I don't want to walk the path that you've given me. I don't want to take this one in. Just so we have clarity here, this, this cup that he's talking about, it, it's not a literal cup, but a metaphor used in the Old Testament to describe God's righteous judgment, his wrath over sin and rebellion, the, the way in which people are going to suffer. For Christ specifically, it must have been brutal because he was completely pure. In that moment, he knew that the sin that, that the father was about ready to pour his wrath down upon him for was not his because he, he was sinless. This cup that, that he was facing was this vicious concoction that was, and I don't know how to say this, so shocking. It was so dreadful, so horrendous, so appalling, so atrocious that Jesus' heart and soul were just absolutely disgusted at the thought of bearing it. It's the perfect son of God. He must have been thinking, how am I going to drink the filth of humanity's rebellion, Father? How could he bear the Father's wrath? As you go back, like into Matthew and, and Mark, you can just see that these questions were just torturing him. This was the conflict in his heart, and I believe this when he said, Remove. He was saying to him, in essence, and you find this like in, in Mark 14, that, that maybe it could happen later. Maybe it could happen another time, Father. Perhaps there could be some other cup to drink. I mean, there must be some other way to deal with humanity's rebellion against us. He was being honest, transparent. What's so encouraging, however, was that in this moment, we capture the heart of a real human being. He was real. Like I said earlier, sometimes I feel like we think he's like a Jedi or he's Zen. But in this moment, flesh and blood, just like you and me, here is Jesus now, 
in front of the Father testifying, and it's such a truth, it's a powerful truth of the reality that our incarnation, he was really a man. Yes, he was really God, but Jesus was genuinely praying. He was sitting those moments like you and I have sat there just going, Lord, I don't want to go down this path. In his manhood, like I think any person, he desired not to suffer. He didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to walk through all of these different things that it entailed. I think what's so cool about this for me is just that's a normal reaction. I think it pulls out two things about this, is that in order for us to be these confident, these composed people that live in the world, I think it requires a ton of time that we spend with our Father just being honest Telling him what's going on in our world. Telling him what's going on in his mind. He already knows. But I think the other thing that we see here is this conflict he was experiencing that was going on inside of him. It wasn't sinful. It was just the outcome of being human. Fully God, fully man. A few months ago, when I lost my father from COVID, I... I, I can honestly say I hit this moment. About 20 years ago, you know, I've always told like stories about my dad because he, 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 he was such a good dad to me as a kid. But about 20 years ago, my dad and I had a falling out after he decided to, to divorce my mother. For about 15 years, we saw each, we saw each other. We, we talked about different things going on in our lives. But our relationship was just, it was broken. Five years ago, man, by the grace of God, our relationship began to be rebuilt. We were kind of working through how to restore what had been lost. And about a year ago, he, he came out with me to help me remodel my kitchen. And oh my gosh, it was almost like going back into my boyhood. It was just a sweet time for he and me. I watched him as he, he began to love on my kiddos, something that I had longed to see my dad do for so long. And as he was leaving, I'll never forget that, we hugged each other and we said, man, we have to make the commitment, we gotta do this more. But when COVID hit him, and I can still remember looking at him through Zoom as he was struggling to breathe, knowing full well, the doctors told us, that they were gonna pull the plug, remove the ventilator, and my father was gonna be with Jesus. I was just sitting there going, why, God? Why? Man, we just got this thing fixed. No, can't we move it along a little bit later? Can't you, can't you take him a little bit more from now? Man, all the things that I had wanted and longed for and hoped that my children would be able to enjoy, I just sat there one day. I was sitting in this very room and nobody was even here and I just started screaming, God, why? Not now. Couldn't you wait? You see what I mean? There's these moments where we hit our breaking point. And in those moments, our God, who absolutely adores us, our God, who is omnipotent, he's powerful above all things, he can handle us crying out to him. He can handle our honesty. In fact, in some ways, I feel like our prayers are way too G-rated and we need to have way more R-rated prayers with the Lord. 
not there yet. I'm, I'm learning about what does this mean to talk with him through this particular situation. But I think the one thing that got submitted in my heart is I know my father loves me, not my earthly father, my heavenly father. And I knew he was in control. So if we look at it, we have father, we have if, and we now have this idea of, Father, can you take this away from me? And then we have down in 42, nevertheless. And one of the things that you see here, he just says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's so interesting is here's Jesus in this moment, and I think it's one of the more beautiful moments in all the Gospels. In that particular moment, as he's talking to the Father, you just see this sense of surrender to him. It's this place that anybody gets the moment that we come before our Father who we know adores us, the moment we come before our Father who's the omnipotent ruler of the universe, the more that we come before our Father, we've just been honest. There was just this sweet surrender in that very moment between the Father and the Son where he says to him, not my will but yours be done. He didn't want to go down that path. Everything about it seemed hideous and wrong and by the way it was right. But on the other side of it is the Father going, no, this is thy, my will. This is the way I've designed it. This is the way you're going to rescue humanity. And in that moment, the son just says, not my will, but yours be done. I think sometimes when we think of surrender, we think of it as like at that moment, we kind of just give up or we, we kind of now just go, okay, whatever, Jesus. The thing I think we miss is that actually at the moment of that surrender, like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, in that moment of sweet surrender when we experience the grace of God, in that moment what gets ushered into it is something so real and so powerful in surrender. In our weakness, we are actually strong. See, this is what you can just watch in this whole thing that gets moving along through this prayer when everything is said and done and the son surrenders to the will of the father. Back into his life comes that composure. Back into his life comes that confidence. And in almost a sweet moment in verse 23, the father sends an angel, it says, to strengthen When the surrender had taken place, God's grace ushered in, and Jesus, just a few moments later, is arrested. And with calmness and composure and confidence, he went to the cross. It was victory. See, this is what I want for us. If we're going to be the people that God's called us to be, that, that enter into what God has for us next, if we're gonna be that confident group of people, that composed group of people, it's not gonna happen by screaming at our government and having rah-rah speeches about how the church needs to stand up for our rights. It's not gonna happen through us trying to, in any kind of a way, think that we can take back control from anything. For the church to truly be confident, to be the people want us to be, to be composed, to be calm, to enter into whatever he has for us over this next year, 
It is not gonna hand, it's not gonna happen with us standing with our fist being shaken at the world. It's gonna happen when we fall on our face. We acknowledge our Father. We realize his capacity to do all things according to his will. We're honest with him. And then we say, not my will, but yours be done. That's what we're facing, Cornerstone. And I would say one of the greatest things that we could do and probably one of my greatest regrets over this last year is that we haven't prayed enough. I think it's time that we fall on our face so that we might be the confident, the calm, the composed people that God's called us to be because we've been broken and unsettled before our holy God. So would you just pray with me right now? Father, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness in our lives. Father, would you please, just in this moment, would you allow us as a church just to truly know and understand and experience the reality of you as our Father? Father, would we believe deep within us if you're willing that you are God, you are omnipotent over all things? God, would you help us to wrestle through you? Would you teach us to come to you and to be honest with you? Father, you are the omnipotent God of the entire universe, but would we trust that you love us and you adore us and you are powerful above all things? You can handle us coming to you and crying out to you and being honest with you. But God, over Cornerstone, would you just unleash a sense of your presence because we have said, not our will, but yours be done. And then would you turn us and move us out into a community that is so lost and so broken and so needy. And when they wouldn't find us as arrogantly confident people, but they would they find graciously humble, bold people because we've encountered our God in prayer. Please do that. In your precious name I pray. Amen.